from room 316 at the Four Points by Sheraton in Coral Gables, Florida. This is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, speaking to you from humid, or should I say humid, South Florida, We have returned to Miami to pay another visit to the Italian consulate. Martha was able to secure us a last-minute appointment a few days ago. We jetted down. We just returned from the consulate where a nice uh, fella helped us submit our application for an elective residency. And now we wait. Now we wait to see whether or not we are approved for said visa, although I see no reason why we wouldn't be. South Florida, as you know, muggy. I don't know why anybody lives here. Why does anybody live here? In this muggy, humid, swampy state. That being said, Miami seems pretty nice. You know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna live in Florida, my advice, live in Miami. Otherwise, just take a pencil eraser to the whole state. It's just, it's just not a place people should be, uh, or at least Americans. Maybe the Spaniards had it figured out when they were here, you know? Uh, if you head up to, what is it, St. Augustine, that's supposed to be real nice. I haven't been there yet. That's, that was the big Spanish settlement there. And uh, in fact, the Italian consulate is on Ponce de Leon Boulevard. And on the bottom floor of the Italian consulate, you can buy a Ferrari. It's not attached to the Italian consulate, but the store on the corner of that building sells Ferraris and Aston Martins and Maseratis and the whole thing. And uh, they do like, uh, you know, it's Christmas time. So just like at the Lexus dealer, they've got bows on the hoods of the Ferraris. Like, hey, bring this home to your honey, you know, $329,000. Of course, in Miami Vice... What was Don Johnson driving around in? Ferrari. It's all they drive in Miami. Ferrari, Lamborghini, Maserati. It's a very Italian city. Well, they, they drive the Italian exotic sports cars around. And the ladies with the boom, boom, you know, and they walk around in the boom, boom. I don't know what that means. In my head, it was two butt cheeks going back and forth, going boom, 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 boom. But, you know, I don't, I don't really see women walking around going boom boom I you know it would be weird if your butt cheeks did make that noise boom boom I walk around the boom boom but anyway so that's where we are we we return uh, this afternoon back to uh, sunny Savannah Florida where apparently the temperatures are going to get into the teens for Christmas it's going to be a it's going to be the coldest Christmas in Savannah in decades no snow however which is, you know, disappointing. If it's going to get that cold down south, like you, you want it to be accompanied by snow, but apparently not. So, you know, Martha organized this trip down, and of course it went swimmingly and smooth. There weren't any problems because she organized it, and uh, not me. And so, you know, I only got yelled at once, reminding me that this trip would have been unnecessary if I had filled out the initial application correctly the first time. I know. I know. And I told her it was her fault 
for asking me to do the job in the first place. And that is the story that I am sticking with. Our marital woes aside, there's other romantic woes going on there in Wuthering Heights. You know, we've got Kathy Jr. and Linton apparently picking up some steamy affair. I mean, steamy is hardly the word. I mean, the kid can't even, you know, she pushed the arm of his chair and he practically died. I mean, there, it's, it wouldn't be possible to have an affair with Linton Heathcliff because as soon as any physical intimacy uh, were initiated, his bones would crumble to dust. He is not capable of any sort of physicality. Mrs. Dean seems to think he is not going to live into his 20s an opinion which she shared with Kathy Jr., who did not take kindly to it. And so Mrs. Dean and Kathy Jr., they're having a little contra-temps. She is threatening to inform Mr. Linton, and unless he allow it, the intimacy with your cousin must not be revived. It has been revived, muttered Kathy sulkily. That's where we left it last time, with Kathy galloping off back to Thrushcross Grange, leaving poor Mrs. Dean in her dust. So why don't we pick it up with chapter 23, Wuthering Heights. We both reached home before our dinner time. My master supposed we had been wandering through the park, and therefore he demanded no explanation of our absence. As soon as I entered, I hastened to change my soaked shoes and stockings, but sitting such a while at the heights had done the mischief. On the succeeding morning I was laid up, and during three weeks I remained incapacitated for attending to my duties, a calamity never experienced prior to that period, and never, I am thankful to say, since. Well, you know, uh, as somebody, me, who played somebody in service, I have some insight into this. You know, I played peepers on another period. And yeah, you, I mean, that you, 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 when you're in service, brother, you take that, you take that job seriously. Can't be lollygagging about, sitting on your duff when there are quails to be polished. Who's to polish the quails if I'm incapacitated for three weeks on end? A fortnight and a half, my goodness, can be lollygagging about. And Mrs. Dean is no doubt the same. I mean, you know, can't be sitting around for three weeks. Everybody in this book is so uh, uh, delicate, you know? She goes out, she gets her feet wet, she's laid up for three weeks. I mean, does that, who does that happen to? I'm glad we live today, you know, where you can just pop a couple of Tylenol. Much better. Much, much better. My little mistress behaved like an angel in coming to wait on me and cheer my solitude. The confinement brought me exceedingly low. It is wearisome to a stirring, active body. But few have slighter reasons for complaint than I had. The moment Catherine left Mr. Linton's room, she appeared at my bedside. Her day was divided between us. No amusement usurped a minute. She neglected her meals, her studies, and her play, and she was the fondest nurse that ever watched. She must have had a warm heart when she loved her father so, to give so much to me. I said her days were divided between us, but the master retired early 
and I generally needed nothing after six o'clock. Thus the evening was her own. Bom, bom, bom. Well, once we assign her some free time, well, that's trouble, you know, because once these teenagers have a little idle time, uh, the devil's going to come knocking and the devil is going to get his due. And in this case, we've got two devils at play. We've got one by the name of Beelzebub, and one by the name of Heathcliff. And both devils are hard at work on Kathy Jr. Poor thing. I never considered what she did with herself after tea. Well, that is your mistake, dummy. And though frequently when she looked in to bid me good night, I remarked a fresh color in her cheeks and a pinkness over her slender fingers. Instead of fancying the hue borrowed from a cold ride across the moors, I laid it to the charge of a hot fire in the library. Well, then you're a idiot. You are a idiot, Mrs. Dean. Because, uh, you know, her whole thing is she's going to go. She's going to, you know, she's going to become reacquainted with Linton. That's her whole thing. You know, she just said it to you. Who, who are you to tell me that the uh, acquaintance hasn't been renewed when, of course, it has been? In you and your sickbed, drinking consomme and watching old episodes of Maury, not paying any attention to your charge. Well, Mrs. Dean, when whatever befalls her befalls her, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. End of chapter 23. <sighs> you know. This is just trouble. This is just trouble. And terrible things are about to happen, hopefully right here in chapter 24, which we begin right now. At the close of three weeks, I was able to quit my chamber and move about the house. And on the first occasion of my sitting up in the evening, I asked Catherine to read to me because my eyes were weak. We were in the library, the master having gone to bed. She consented, rather unwillingly, I fancied, and imagining my sort of books did not suit her, I bid her please herself in the choice of what she perused. She selected one of her own favorites, and got forward steadily about an hour. Then came frequent questions. Ellen, are you not tired? Hadn't you better lie down now? You'll be sick keeping up so long, Ellen. Well, <laughs> I think we both know that her concern is but a ruse. And I don't know if Ellen is dumb enough to fall for this ruse. Because, you know, she's got a pony waiting to, to fetch her four miles to Linton's feeble grasp. He wants to place his skeletal fingers about her bodice. And she just needs Ellen to go to bed before she can go. No, no, dear, I'm not tired. I returned continually, perceiving me immovable. She essayed another method of showing her disrelish for her occupation. It changed to yawning and stretching, and Ellen, I'm tired. Well, give over then and talk, I answered. That was worse. She fretted and sighed and looked at her watch till eight, and finally went to her room, completely overdone with sleep, judging by her peevish, heavy look 
and the constant rubbing she inflicted on her eyes. The following night she seemed more impatient still, and on the third from recovering my company she complained of a headache and left me. Ellen, come on, my dear, are you so naive as this? Maybe Ellen was never young enough of heart to fancy a lad. You know, we don't know anything. All we know about her is she's into the, the guy that comes once a month to, I even forget what he does. What does he do? He drops off. What does he do? He sharpens knives or makes leather goods or picks up barley or I don't know what he does, but he comes by once a month or so. And uh, that's the only man that Ellen has ever mentioned. And me, you know, being a romantic at heart, I just fancied a relationship between the two, although she indicated no such thing. But my point being that, you know, Ellen knows, Mrs. Dean knows Kathy Jr.'s heart, and she knows the temptation just four miles down the road. And her head never once thinks to itself, where the hell has Kathy Jr. gone off? Not once has she questioned her nights and how they are spent? Apparently not. I thought her conduct odd, and having remained alone a long while, I resolved on going and inquiring whether she were better, and asking her to come and lie on the sofa instead of upstairs in the dark. No Catherine could I discover upstairs and none below. The servants affirmed they had not seen her. I listened at Mr. Edgar's door. All was silence. I returned to her apartment, extinguished my candle, and seated myself in the window. The moon shone bright. A sprinkling of snow covered the ground, and I reflected that she might, possibly, have taken it into her head to walk about the garden, you idiot, for refreshment. No. No. I did detect a figure creeping along the inner fence of the park, but it was not my young mistress. On its emerging into the light, I recognized one of the grooms. He stood a considerable period, viewing the carriage road through the grounds, then started off at a brisk pace, as if he had detected something, and reappeared presently, leading Mrs. Pony. And there she was, just dismounted and walking by its side. The man took his charge stealthily across the grass towards the stable. Kathy entered by the casement window of the drawing room and glided noisily up to where I awaited her. And she is going to get beat about the buttocks if I have anything to say about this. This girl needs some discipline. And she needs it fast before she ends up with child or some such nonsense. Anyway, let's take a break. We'll collect our thoughts and drink some frozen drinky, you know, out by the pool here in South Florida. I'm not by the pool at all, but uh, so we'll return in a moment here on Obscure. Back on Obscure, room 316 at the Four Points by Sheridan. Sheridan, you may only have four points, but I'm giving you five stars. What a nice room this is. You know, for a mid-priced 
Businessman's Hotel. It could do a lot worse than four points by Sheraton. The internet is good. The bed is comfortable. The bathroom is clean. What else do you want in a hotel? Nothing. That's what. Nothing. So, you know, there has been some subterfuge going on there at Thrushcross Grange involving Kathy, a groomsman, and a pony. And off in the shadows, presumably, Linton Heathcliff. And there in the deeper penumbra, his father Heathcliff. So, Mrs. Dean is up in the room, waiting on her window seat for Kathy to enter. She put the door gently to, slipped off her snowy shoes, untied her hat, and was proceeding, unconscious of my espionage, to lay aside her mantle, when I suddenly rose and revealed myself. The surprise petrified her an instant. She uttered an inarticulate exclamation and stood fixed. My dear Miss Catherine, I began, too vividly impressed by her recent kindness to break into a scold. Where have you been riding out at this hour, and why should you try to deceive me by telling a tale? Where have you been? Speak. To the bottom of the park, she stammered. I, I didn't tell a tale, and nowhere else, I demanded. No, was the muttered reply. Oh, Catherine, I cried sorrowfully. You know you have been doing wrong, or you wouldn't be driven to uttering an untruth to me. That does grieve me. I'd rather the three months ill than hear you frame a deliberate lie. She sprang forward and, bursting into tears, threw her arms round my neck. Well, Ellen, I'm so afraid of you being angry, she said. Promise not to be angry, and you shall know the very truth. I hate to hide it. We sat down in the window seat. I assured her I would not scold whatever her secret might be, and I guessed it, of course. So she commenced. I've been to Wuthering Heights, Ellen, and I've never missed going a day since you fell ill, except thrice before and twice after you left your room. I gave Michael books and pictures to prepare Minnie every evening. Who's Michael? To prepare books and pictures to prepare Minnie every evening and to put her back in the stable. I guess Michael's the stable boy. You mustn't scold him either, mind. I was at the Heights by half past six and generally stayed till half past eight and then galloped home. It was not to amuse myself that I went. I was often wretched all the time. Now and then I was happy, once in a week perhaps. At first, I expected there would be sad work persuading you to let me keep my word to Linton, for I had engaged to call again next day when we quitted him. But as you stayed upstairs on the morrow, I escaped that trouble, and while Michael was refastening the lock of the park door in the afternoon, I got possession of the key, and told him how my cousin wished me to visit him because he was sick, and couldn't come to the Grange, and how Papa would object to my going, and then I negotiated with him about the pony. He is fond of reading, and he thinks of leaving soon to get married, so he offered if I would lend him books out of the library to do what I wished but I preferred giving him my own, and that satisfied him better. On my second visit, Linton seemed in lively spirits, and Zilla, that is their housekeeper, made us a clean room and a good fire, and told us that, as Joseph was out at a prayer meeting, and Hareton Earnshaw was off with his dogs, robbing our woods of pheasants, as I heard afterwards, we might do what we liked. 
She brought me some warm wine and gingerbread and appeared exceedingly good-natured, and Linton sat in the armchair, and I in the little rocking chair on the hearthstone, and we laughed and talked so merrily and found so much to say. We planned where we would go and what we would do in summer. I needn't repeat that because you would call it silly. Well, I mean, we're getting the whole blow-by-blow, and dare I say the whole boring blow-by-blow, because to this point it is boring. I don't need to know that she ate gingerbread and drank wine, and they talked about silly summer plans. Tell me more, tell me more, did, did you... Did she put up a fight? Some loving had me a blast. Some loving happened so fast. One time, however, we were near quarreling. He said the pleasantest manner of spending a hot July day was lying from morning till evening on a bank of heath in the middle of the moors, with the bees humming dreamily about among the bloom, and the larks singing high up overhead, and the blue sky and bright sun shining steadily and cloudlessly. That was his most perfect idea of heaven's happiness. Mine was rocking in a rustling green tree, with a a west wind blowing and bright white clouds flitting rapidly above, and not only larks, but throstles and blackbirds and linnets and cuckoos pouring out music on every side and the moors seen at a distance, broken into cool, dusky dells, but close by, great swells of long grass undulating in waves to the breeze and woods and sounding water and the whole world awake and wild with joy. He wanted all to lie in an ecstasy of peace. I wanted all to sparkle and dance in a glorious jubilee. I said his heaven would be only half alive, and he said mine would be drunk. I said I should fall asleep in his, and he said he could not breathe in mine, and began to grow very snappish. At last we agreed to try both, as soon as the right weather came, and then we kissed each other and were friends. After sitting still an hour, I looked at the great room with its smooth, uncarpeted floor and thought how nice it would be to play in if we removed the table, and I asked Linton to call Zilla in to help us, and we'd have a game at Blind Man's Bluff. She should try to catch us. You used to, you know, Ellen. He wouldn't. There was no pleasure in it, he said, but he consented to play at ball with me. We found two in a cupboard among a heap of old toys, tops and hoops, battledoors, and shuttlecocks. One was marked C and the other H. I wished to have the C because that stood for Catherine, and the H might be for Heathcliff, his name, but the brand came out of H, and Linton didn't like it. So now they're traveling back in time, are they, through the memories of Wuthering Heights to gather their playthings, to revisit the ghosts of old, young C and young H, and all the playthings in the cupboards within. It's spooky, spooky, I say, spooky. I beat him constantly, and he got cross again, and coughed and returned to his chair. That night, though, He easily recovered his good humor. He was charmed with two or three pretty songs. Your songs, Ellen. 
and when I was obliged to go, he begged and entreated me to come the following evening, and I promised. Minnie and I went flying home as light as air, and I dreamt of Wuthering Heights and my sweet darling cousin till morning. On the morrow I was sad, partly because you were poorly, and partly that I wished my father knew and approved of my excursions. But it was beautiful moonlight after tea, and as I rode on, the gloom cleared. I shall have another happy evening, I thought to myself, and what delights me more, my pretty Linton will. I trotted up their garden, and was turning round to the back, when that fellow Earnshaw met me, took my bridle, and bid me go in by the front entrance. He patted Minnie's neck, and said she was a bonny beast, and appeared as if he wanted me to speak to him. I only told him to leave my horse alone, or else it would kick him. He answered in his vulgar accent, It wouldn't do much hurt if it did, and surveyed its legs with a smile. I was half inclined to make it try, however. He moved off to open the door, and as he raised the latch, he looked up to the inscription above, and said with a stupid mixture of awkwardness and elation, Miss Catherine, I can read your na. Wonderful, I exclaimed. Pray, let us hear you. You are grown clever. He spelt and drawled over, the, over by syllables the name, Hareton Earnshaw. And the figures, I cried encouragingly, perceiving that he came to a dead halt. I cannot tell him yet, he answered. Oh, you dunce, I said, laughing. <laughs> you dunce. <laughs> you know, Hareton is her cousin, too. Why don't they talk about that? You know, they're related, these two kids. But he's treated like shit, and Linton is exalted. Hareton's got the purer heart. Hareton's got the better heart. You know, he's been, he's been brought up to be a brute purposefully, been kept ignorant. Linton has been petted and fetted and groomed and pampered. And, you know, his heart is a stiletto. Why doesn't she fall for Hareton? He's the better catch. Even Heathcliff thinks so. You can't, you can't be calling people dunces because they don't know how to read or write when they haven't been taught. And Hareton's clearly been, been learning. He's been book learning himself. Doesn't he get props for that? Doesn't he get some points for that? Of course not. Ah, oh, she's shitty. The fool stared with a grin hovering about his lips and a scowl gathering over his eyes as if uncertain whether he might join in my mirth, whether it were not pleasant familiarity, or what it really was, contempt. I settled his doubts by suddenly retrieving my gravity and desiring him to walk away, for I came to see Linton, not him. He reddened. I saw that by the moonlight, dropped his hand from the latch, and skulked off, a picture of mortified vanity. He imagined himself to be as accomplished as Linton, I suppose, because he could spell his own name, and was marvelously discomfited that I didn't think the same. Stop, Miss Catherine, dear, I interrupted. I shall not scold, but I don't like your conduct there. If you had remembered that Hareton was your cousin as much as Master Heathcliff, you would have felt how improper it was to behave in that way. It's what I was saying. He's a cousin, too. They're equally related. First cousin on one side, first cousin on the other. And you treat one 
who doesn't deserve it, like shit, and the other who doesn't deserve it, like treasure. Well, I think you've got your treasure and your shit all mixed up. And you wouldn't be the first, I might add, to make that mistake. At least it was praiseworthy ambition for him to desire to be as accomplished as Linton, and probably he did not learn merely to show off. You had made him ashamed of his ignorance before, I have no doubt, and he wished to remedy it and please you. To sneer at his imperfect attempt was very bad breeding. Had you been brought up in his circumstances, would you be less rude? He was as quick and as intelligent a child as ever you were, and I'm hurt that he should be despised now, because that base Heathcliff has treated him so unjustly. Well, Ellen, you won't cry about it, will you? <laughs> That's kind of a perfect teenage response, isn't it? Well, Ellen, you won't cry about it, will you? <laughs> she exclaimed, surprised at my earnestness. But wait, and you shall hear if he conned his ABC to please me, and if it were worthwhile being civil to the brute. I entered. Linton was lying on the settle, and half got up to welcome me. I'm ill tonight, Catherine, love, he said, and you must have all the talk, and let me listen. Come, and sit by me. I was sure you wouldn't break your word, and I'll make you promise again before you go. So, we'll find out what happened uh, between Linton and Catherine and Hareton the Brute next time, but my throat is tired, you know, this southern Florida air, it'll really do to you. We, we go home uh, very shortly. We leave here in about an hour and Head on back up to Savannah, uh, where we will celebrate the holy day in the freezing cold without any snow at all. So, um, yeah, I hope all of you who celebrate have a very merry Christmas. My uh, daughter is home. My son is home. So we have our our whole little brood together, which is very pleasant indeed, at least for us, maybe less so for the children who, you know, you know how kids are. You know, the kids get to a certain age, they don't give a shit about the parents, but the parents never stop giving a shit about the kids. That's the lesson you learn, you know. And uh, so, you know, they're still tenuously connected to us as they begin their adult lives, and we'll take it. We'll take their tenuous connection. We probably only have so many Christmases with them before they have families of their own. So we'll leave it there on that somewhat morose note. And we'll pick it up again next time on another, uh, uh, what, uh, merry, no, festive, I don't know, ecclesiastical, sure, we haven't heard that, heard that while in a couple seasons, on another ecclesiastical episode of Obscure, but until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating 
and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks. Thanks.